If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. Riesling is the most amazing grape variety when it comes to transparency of region, and yet no matter where it's grown, it's Riesling. Even in the wrong regions, even in the wrong climates, and even made badly by winemakers who don't know what they're doing, Riesling is still Riesling. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 579. This week we feature Dan Berger, wine journalist and author, Sonoma County. recently met with wine journalist and author Dan Berger, early one day in November, and we chatted in a rather busy lobby of a Marriott hotel. I could have listened to Dan for hours. He has seen so very much of the wine industry that it simply blows my mind. I owe a special thanks to Eric Oz for introducing me to Dan via email. While editing the audio for this podcast, I had the great pleasure of reliving our conversation in that busy lobby. You can hear Dan on our Vino Lingo segment defining the term trocken. I'm here today in, of all places, the lobby of a Marriott hotel. Uh, not to give Marriott any advertising, but I've said it twice, so there you go. And I'm here with uh, wine journalist Dan Berger. Dan, how are you today? Fine. Thank you for being here for the podcast. Pleasure. You have... Uh, an extraordinary history of wine writing and experience in the industry dating back to the 70s put you in a place before a lot of major things happened in the United States. Can you tell me a little bit about that? It was an interesting time for the industry. It was coming out of its cocoon and didn't really develop much expertise early on. Part of it was the vestiges of prohibition, which uh, essentially shut down all of the scientific investigation that had been doing, done at UC Davis and Fresno State prior to 1919. And from 1919 to 1933, there was no scientific investigation into winemaking, and uh, it didn't ratchet up until 66 when Robert Mondavi opened up his winery for the first time. So really, the industry was coming out of a lethargy that was built on virtually no knowledge. I understand originally you had been writing in sports, is that correct? I was a sports writer for 13 years, and then I did some high technology, but I started writing about wine in 1979, uh, actually before I finished my sports writing, and then ended up doing uh, quite a bit of high technology reporting for the San Diego Union, and that's where I got to know the wine community of San Diego, and that was a tremendous benefit in terms of my development. I can imagine. And we should say, you've written extensively for the Los Angeles Times, as well as Associated Press. I mean, I was with the LA Times for uh, almost eight years. Uh, I worked for Associated Press prior to that as a general assignment reporter for 10 years there. And uh, so my background is essentially in journalism. And you've also written a few books? So, written a few books, and uh, including some books that have nothing to do with wine, which is just something to keep busy. Sure. Well, it's good to step out of it from time to time. Yeah. But um, going back into the 70s, everybody talks about the tasting of Paris. Uh, where were you at 
when that happened in terms of your writing? What, what, I guess, what was your reaction? Well, in 1976, when uh, the Paris tasting took place, uh, I had only written uh, a wine column for maybe less than a year. And I was unaware of the impact of this, uh, partly as a result of the fact that California wine was really not on the horizon yet. I was buying them and I was drinking them, essentially. Uh, but uh, really, California wine was so new to the uh, industry, uh, Bordeaux was the thing. And the fact that uh, California wines would uh, win, win out over the French in a blind tasting in Paris was a, an interesting uh, curiosity, but I was also a math major in college, and I used my mathematical instincts to realize that this was probably a slight aberration and would eventually go down in history without much acclaim, but it turned out to be <laughs> a lot more important than that. Well, would it be fair to say, especially as you head out of the 70s into the 80s, it took a little while till this had any kind of effect? I think it took at least a decade before the effect was really felt um, because, first of all, it was only one reporter who covered it, and it was in Paris at a, at a location that was pretty obscure. Uh, when the reporter uh, sent his story into Time Magazine, Time Magazine reported in a single column uh, with a small headline. Uh, the headline included the phrase, Judgment of Paris, so that's how the name came up. But um, really, it didn't have any particular uh, impact until California realized uh, what had actually happened. And then some years later, some publicists got involved, and that was where it began to take off. Well, let's talk about you and your personal experience with wine. When did you start drinking wine? When did you get serious about wine? I got serious about wine in 1972 um, as a result of a sporting investigation. I was covering the Olympic Games track and field trials in Eugene, Oregon. It's a long involved story which I won't bore you with, but uh, one Saturday night I went to dinner with a friend at the Hotel Eugene, ordered a bottle of Riesling uh, to go with my swordfish, and then uh, they brought the bottle of wine to the table and I smelled it and I said something wrong. And the uh, waiter said, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know, something wrong. And he, I handed him the glass, and he smelled it, and he says, well, this wine's corked. And I said, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and he said, well, it's been infected by a bad cork. And I said, well, then take it away. And he said, but, he says, first of all, I have to tell you, you have a future in wine. He says, this corkiness is very subtle, but you picked it up. And I said, well, I don't know what I'm dealing with. And he said, well, someday you will. And <laughs> So as he went away to get another bottle of this stuff, by the way, the second bottle was clean as a whistle, and he said, uh, he said something about, um, uh, this is an interesting aspect to the business that nobody talks about, but it says, you obviously know what you're doing. I said, no, I really don't know what I'm doing. But, <laughs> so it was, that was the beginning, and it, it taught me something. Yeah, I bet it did, and I think it's an example for many people to trust your senses to like what you like and what you don't like. Yeah, I think part of it is is education. I didn't know what I was finding uh, offensive about that particular bottle, but just didn't seem like it was appropriate to be spending, you know, $9 for a bottle like that <laughs> in a restaurant. Sure. Well, especially back then, $9 was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it was tenth, tenth of my weekly salary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big buck. And I'm assuming it was a dry Riesling. 
No, it was actually, it was, it was a spade laser. Oh, funny, funny. <laughs> Which I didn't know anything about at the time. <laughs> well, that would be the kind of wine you'd order if you didn't know something about it, because that seems to be the more common one people would recognize. I, I, I just anything. liked Riesling at the time, and strangely enough, I still love Riesling. It's my favorite grape variety on the planet, and uh, if I had a go-to wine, it's Riesling every day of the week. And do you prefer the sweeter still? No. Everything I like now is completely dry. Yeah. That's not surprising. So in your journey, did you have this exploratory, I want to try this because I've never done it, let me learn about this? I mean, was that the kind of attitude you might have had? I was very fortunate. I had a good friend who was really much more into wine than I was. And by 1976, he had convinced me it was time to, for the two of us to go up and take the uh, UC Davis short course in enology. So we went up, we drove, uh, it was June of uh, 1976, we drove up to Davis. My brother was living in Davis, and he said, you can stay with us. So I stayed with my brother and his wife at the time, and we went to the two-day UC Davis short course in enology, and it was so amazing how much I didn't know about wine and how much was really fascinating. It was a journalist's heaven because if you're a journalist, you're inquisitive. And I was really, really inquisitive about that stuff. And I heard all these terms, I wrote them all down. And when I came back, as we were driving back down I-5, which wasn't even I-5 at the time, and we're driving back to Los Angeles, where I was living at the time, and I kept saying to my friend Mike, I said, look, we've got to push into this more. This is serious stuff. And he and I both began to investigate it together. So fortunately, with a good friend in the business, indirectly in the business, the two of us sort of uh, leapfrogged each other until finally I stayed in it and he backed away. That had to be a lot of fun. It was tremendous fun. It was absolutely the most exciting time for me personally because I was discovering stuff right and left. I mean, it was so amazing. And then in 19... 79 when I moved to San Diego to become a sports writer at the San Diego Union I was asked to write the wine column for Copley News Service and I really didn't know what I was doing but they needed a wine columnist and I said I'll do it so it forced me to do a lot of homework and research and go to tastings and and do all kinds of investigation into enology viticulture all the other subjects uh, agronomy and botany and stuff like that it was very interesting and that the more I learned, the more I realized that 99% of it was of no use to my readers. But it was important to me to know the background. And then when I said something about the wine, I could back it up. If somebody ever asked me, prove that, I could. That gives you a great advantage when talking to people about wine and wanting to explain it to them without it being threatening. Because you're coming from an educational point of view. Correct. Yeah. And I think more importantly, the consumer needs to know that the writer is knowledgeable about wines enough to back up the support that he or she gives to support the validity of a tasting note that you write for a particular wine. If I just wrote about a Rioja, I didn't just do it because I liked it. I did it because of all the other things I learned about the wine that, that lead up to my appreciation for what it is. Now, obviously, when you do dinners, you go to different kinds of tastings. That's all part of education. But did you seek out more formal education as time went by? Yes, but most of it was by buying books from UC Davis's uh, wine library uh, from the bookstore and reading up on my own. I bought uh, Table Wines by Amarine, 
and I read through table wines as much as I could. It was a lot of chemistry in there, which I didn't understand, but that's fine. I mean, I ignored the chemistry, but re read through the words, and the words were important. And then I talked to winemakers, got to, got to know winemakers very, very well. And in fact, I got to know some of the best of them. They were people who had chemistry backgrounds, and I learned the chemistry on the fly. So I was able to do some microbiological analysis quickly and some chemistry analysis quickly because I was already conversant with the language of, of chemistry and, and microbiology. I didn't understand it all, but I understood enough of it to be able to convey it to my readers without it being difficult to understand. My columns are never technical. That's a good thing because, of course, you don't want to get into gobbledygook because then you lose people, don't you? Yeah, every now and then I'd write a column on what is the meaning of pH or what is the meaning of potassium, but I would explain it in real English as opposed to technological terms. Yeah, my mind's going crazy right now because of all the things I could be asking you, so I'm not going to keep you here all morning. <laughs> but uh, it, this is fascinating stuff for me. What other books were really doing it for you back in those days? From a romantic point of view, uh, I was reading... Uh, Robert Lawrence Balzer from the Los Angeles Times. I was reading uh, Hugh Johnson's books that had just come out from England. Uh, Hugh Johnson was lyrical. Um, uh, there were several others uh, who were uh, clever enough to be able to put words on paper that actually meant something. It wasn't just fantasy land. It wasn't just this is an erotic wine or this is a you know, blue wine or something like that. Most of it was a little bit more down to earth and that was important for me to be able to see the difference, between, for example, the difference between Cote de Nuit and Cote de Bone, two wines from the same essential district in Burgundy but different districts on their own and different styles of wine. And the, when, when Hugh Johnson wrote about them or Michael Broadbent wrote about them and I, bu I bought all those books still have most of them. Um, they encouraged me to look at the differences and to realize that all wines have a validity somewhere for something. I used to have antipathy for natural winemaking. I'm good friends with a chemist and winemaker by the name of Clark Smith who lives up here and Clark and I have gotten together several times and he's tried to educate me into how natural winemaking has a validity. So I started looking into that and wrote a column a, a few months ago called Embrace the Funk, in which I'm talking about wines of funkiness that are still absolutely interesting and fascinating. Are they great wines? It's up to you to make that decision, not me. That's a great statement. I love that statement. Wine is, it's subjective, unless it's simply bad. And, and even then. <laughs> even, some, even some wines with minor spoilage can be charming. I agree, I agree. That's wonderful to hear you say that. An author I'm kind of a big fan of is uh, Leon Adams. Leon was one of my earliest uh, mentors. He was uh, a terrific guy, charming, had a droll sense of humor, was constantly smoking a pipe. And um, I, I was having, I was in a hallway with him at one point after a morning conference that was interminable. And we got out of there at 11.45 and they were gonna do lunch. We're waiting in the hallway, waiting for the luncheon doors to open. 
and we saw that somebody has, was rolling in a big giant cart of ice into which four bottles of white wine had been placed. And this was supposed to be our opening wine for luncheon. And I said, oh, Leon, I, I, see, I see there's some wine coming into that room. And he says, I don't see any wine. It's white. Wine is red. <laughs> That's Leon. <laughs> I'm a big fan, as you could probably tell. I'm just thrilled to know that you met him. Oh, I just, I, I loved him. He, he, he lived to be 90. He was uh, acerbic until the end. <laughs> What's really interesting about Leon was his vision of American wines as he saw them and how so many things he talked about have basically come true. He really saw things for what they were. The one thing that comes most clear in his books was that a wine doesn't have to have greatness for it to achieve a lot. And when he wrote about the wines of Michigan, he didn't ever talk about their quality. He also, but he did say potential, potential, potential. Whatever he wrote about the wines, he was implying that there was great potential. And today, if you go to Michigan, you find a Blau Frankish that will blow you away. It's fabulous wine, along with Pinot Blanc and with Riesling. Uh, upstate New York now producing five or six different wines uh, from varietals we're not familiar with. Uh, if you go, to, I mean, we tasted some wines from North Carolina last week that are, are shockingly fascinating and really tasty. I'd, I'd buy them. As, if I could get my hands on them, I'd buy them all the time. Yeah, I think that's the big thing is getting your hands on these wines. We were just talking about wines in different areas and having an appreciation for them. And I happened to mention to you about my meeting a winemaker, uh, 3,100 sellers in Idaho, and they're really doing some amazing things. The state beekeeper uh, up there in Idaho is also a winemaker, and he makes a phenomenal uh, Tempranillo. And in fact, if you think about regional distinctiveness and specific varieties, Idaho's Tempranillos will blow anybody off the table. Napa can't come close on Tempranillo. I totally believe that. I have had some of those wines. Yeah, really? There's a guy by the name of Earl Sullivan who makes wine up there uh, in Boise, and he is as good as they get. Yeah. And he's a nice man and dedicated, and he, he does something that nobody else in this country does. He physically removes the seeds from his red wine fermentations after about four, uh, three or four days of fermentation. And he gets rid of the seeds by hand and, and by using a, a stainless steel uh, trough with holes. And he is getting rid of seeds because seed tannins tend to be bitter, and he doesn't want his red wines to be bitter, and they are terrific wines. Now, we talked before the interview that you are a winemaker yourself, which yes. I guess that becomes almost inevitable, doesn't it? I, it, I, I think it does, but I think it's also a trap. Uh, yes. Because you become <laughs> yes. seduced by the whole concept. And if you're seduced by the concept, then it ends up starting to cost money. And there's a, there's a limit to how much money you want to spend on a project like this. But my project is small. I make 100 cases of Riesling, and then I make another 100 cases of Vermentino. And that's pretty much it. And um, we're making, uh, I, I did this at, as a home winemaking project in 19, 86, 87, 88, in, in that period. For about eight years in a row, we made Cabernet Sauvignon at home. And the wines are still in the cellar. Some of the bottles have just developed beautifully. The 1990 that we made is brilliant. It's one of the most amazing wines I've ever tasted. It's 32 years old now. 
And the most impressive thing was that when my kids were involved in the harvesting of the grapes, they remember really well how difficult it was to harvest, and they love drinking that wine with me. There's, that's investment. Yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, where were your grapes coming from? It was Napa Valley Cabernet, and we went to various vineyards where we had a, uh, an arrangement with the grower uh, to pick up, you know, a ton, something like that. I mean, it's not exact. A ton gives you 160 gallons. It's not exactly a lot of wine, but you know, that's it was a fa- it was a homemade wine project. That's all. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm I'm fortunate that I have the ability to to have partner with uh, one of the best winemakers in the history of California, and he's my winemaker. I don't make I don't call all the decisions. So this is a commercial product, so I let him make most of the decisions, and then of course, I fine tune it. And so last uh, couple of days ago, in fact, it was yesterday, we were, um, he was going to bring me samples of this year's wine. And he said, I, you, you don't want to try it. It's, we, we, he said the, the fermentation quit at 12 grams. I said, 12 grams I don't uh, of residual sugar. Mm. And I said, I don't want 12 grams in the wine. I said, but the, with the acidity that we've got and with the pH that we've got, we do want about 5 grams. So he says, well, what do you suggest? And I said, well, can you warm up the tanks? and let the fermentation restart. And he said, well, it's a little risky, but I can do it. I said, well, what do you think? He said, you know, I've done it before. I might as well try it. So he brings a heater into the winery, turned the heater onto the tank, the tank's sitting on the floor, and they got it warmed up. And as of yesterday afternoon, the fermentation had had resumed. So we're gonna dr- drop that, that down from 12 grams of sugar. And it's gonna take about two or three days because it's a big tank. But we have another batch that's completely dry and is, is a little too austere. And I said, before you do that, can you drain off 30 gallons and dump it into the other wine? Hmm. And that'll give it a trace of sugar and that's all it needs. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? So <laughs> that's what he's going to do today. Yeah. <laughs> Could I use that? Sure. That's good. That's a really great story. People have asked me if I'd like to be a winemaker, and I have many, many times said absolutely not because it's just a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not easy work, but I have to admit, I look at the back of our, we have a pretty good piece of property, and I just keep visioning these grapes out there going, stop, don't do it. But that's another story. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask who your winemaker is? Sure. No, no problem who at is all. It? Greg LaFollette. And Greg LaFollette is one of the great winemakers in America. He was a protege of Andre Chelichev, uh, worked with Andre, uh, was his number one student for several years. Then he moved on and became part of the Greg and Greg team, which opened up. Uh, he, he, he founded Flowers. He was the first winemaker for Flowers. He opened up the uh, Owl Ridge facility uh, on Highway 116 in Sebastopol. He has made wine. Uh, this is his 67th harvest oh this my. year. Wow. He's made wine on four continents. He's, he's made wine on, in Australia, New Zealand. Um, he's made wine in South America, South Africa. I mean, he's just been everywhere. He's just a fabulous guy. And his knowledge of uh, chemistry is unequaled. So you've met so many winemakers over the years. Are there particular ones that stand out in your mind, both for who they were as well as the wines they made? Oh, uh, at least two, two dozen uh, pioneers of the industry, innovators, creative people who had skills that uh, are hard to describe. 
because even though you have the use of a dictionary and a, and a thesaurus, some of these people really uh, exceed anything that you can think of to say about them. Um, and I could name 20 of them. Um, but these are people who have particular strategies in life to making great wine within the context of what they think of is absolutely essential to make a great wine. One of those is regional identity. Another is varietal identity. Notice we're not talking about hugeness and bigness and high alcohol and brand new oak and all that stuff. We're not talking about that. We're talking about characters that have a vision of some sort of manifest destiny where they have to reach and reach and reach and where they know that every single year just gives them one more step forward. They, they're never going to get there and they don't mind. It, it's, it's the horizon. It's always out there. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. You should be a writer. I guess you should be. <laughs> Do you mind naming a few of those people? When David Lett was uh, first in the business, he was the winemaker for Irie Vineyards up in Oregon, and he was the first winemaker I ever interviewed. And I could see a passion in his eyes. Um, his passing years ago was one of the saddest moments for me because I really loved David. He was a fascinating guy. Um, John Williams from Frog's Leap. Uh, comes to mind, um, uh, Bob Mondavi, who really was not a winemaker as much as a marketer, but a visionary. Um, I mean, there's so many people, Warren Winiarski, who would, would tinker with his own wines even after his winemakers left. I mean, he would, he'd be down there in his pajamas pulling the bungs off of barrels and smelling. I mean, he was just fascinated with the su subject, Mike, Mike Gergich who uh, was dedicated to what Andre had uh, taught him at BV. I mean, I think there's so many people who uh, showed passion and, uh, I mean, I, I could name, like Peter Bell, the winemaker for Fox Run in New York, who just retired. Um, Brian Ulbrich from uh, Michigan, uh, from uh, uh, Leftfoot Charlie, who was just a talent. Um, there was a woman winemaker for, who from Australia who came in uh, Wendy Stuckey, who was working at Chateau Saint-Michel, and Wendy was t taught me more than I ever wanted to know about Riesling. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, so many people in, in Australia, I've, I've been to Australia 23 times, and when you go to 23 times to one country, you get to know some people, some fabulous, fabulous winemakers down there, and all of them have a vision. And sometimes the, the vision is never part of your description of the wine, but I try to make that clear in my articles because these people really exceed anything that you can imagine. Uh, a, a winemaker here is not a functionary. It's a person with a passion and a philosophy. <laughs> I am breathless. Um, I think what I'm drawing from this the most is we use the word passion a lot. It gets thrown around a lot, but it, it's true because so many of these people, and you've kind of already brought it up, came from maybe medical, maybe chemistry backgrounds, mm -hmm. and that's an integral part of being a winemaker is to understand taking it apart and putting it back together again. Right. And then on top of that, to use your own senses to bring that all together that's a, a hell of a road because, like you said, the horizon's always out there. Yeah, it's important to, to keep in mind that 
there are two aspects of, of the wine game that are part and parcel of exactly why a winery exists. And unfortunately, they are incompatible subjects. One is wine quality, and the other is commercialism. And you can't have both. I mean, I suppose you can have both. But I'll give you one example. And this is a good example. An example where the commercialism and the wine quality go so hand in hand that they're inseparable. And that is almost impossible to achieve. And the winery in California that achieves it the best is Navarro up in Mendocino County. Wine there is absolutely astoundingly accurate in terms of varietal and regional characteristics. Jim Klein's the winemaker, has been there for a long, long time. Ted and Deborah Bennett own, Ted, Ted, Ted Bennett and Deborah Kahn own Navarro Vineyards and have from the beginning. This is an astounding property. And every single wine they make, every single, I mean, this is no joke, this is every wine they make exceeds what you would expect. And the prices are always fair. And you have to go to the winery to get them or sh have them shipped to your home. If somebody asks me whenever they do, occasionally I get this question, what wine club should I join? Join Navarro. It is the best wine being made in America today that exceeds the question of commercialism and quality. It's all seamless. So what makes you crazy about the wine business? And that could be positive or negative. I like diversity. I have never used a number on wine. I don't score wines by number. I think numbers are a fiction. And the problem with numbers is that there are no parameters. And without parameters, the numbers mean nothing. And let's just use as an example the fact that, that the number system that we use, one, two, three, four, five, six, et cetera, all the way up to infinity, that system has rules. One plus three and three plus one are identical. Three minus one and one minus three are not identical. And the rule is that subtraction is not commutative and addition is commutative. Well, as a math major, that's the easiest thing in the world. Tell me about how that 100-point score was achieved. It was some fantasy that came up in the head of the reviewer, and that means nothing to me. What style of wine am I going to get? When I buy a bottle of Burgundy, is it going to be like a Cote de Nuit or a Cote de Bonne, or is it going to be like uh, 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 Santa Barbara County? I don't know. And to me, the number means very little except for the fact that it, what it does mean is that the reviewer liked it if it's, if it's a high score, or that the reviewer either didn't like it if it's a low score or misunderstood it. Thank you for going there because I wanted to get to that anyway. <laughs> we were introduced by Eric Oz and, uh, from San Diego, and this is really all... He was one of my, my heroes at the time because really? he, he was very knowledgeable, much more so than I was. And I, I, all my wine that I bought in those days was from Eric's. <laughs> well, he's been very kind to pass your name along as well as another writer. But uh, this relates to this next question because, Eric, if you're listening, you're probably going to yell at me for this. Uh, <laughs> it's my favorite question to ask winemakers. And, and he's asked that I give this to you 
in advance, but I haven't because I haven't had the time. That's okay. So the question is very simple. It's my favorite wine question. You do media, you've I'm sure been interviewed plenty of times in your career. What's the one question you've never been asked that you would like to be asked? I'll give you a minute to think about it. Well, I can think of about five or six questions that have never been asked of me, and I think the one question that nobody's ever asked me that is relates to the, my favorite wine is, why do you like Riesling so much? Nobody's ever asked me that, and I think that this is very difficult to answer a question about why do you like anything so much? Why do you like a red rose so much, or why do you like uh, you know butterscotch so much? I can answer the question about Riesling. Please do. Riesling is the most amazing grape variety when it comes to transparency of region, and yet no matter where it's grown, it's Riesling. Even in the wrong regions, even in the wrong climates, and even made badly by winemakers who don't know what they're doing, Riesling is still Riesling. Fascinatingly, it gives you something, even if it's not a very interesting wine, it relates to the grape variety, which is probably the most malleable of all the grapes. It's, as a white wine, it's going to be limited by the fact that well, people say it doesn't age because it's a white wine, and if you want an aging wine, you buy red. I've got 35, 40-year-old bottles of Riesling in my cellar that are better now than they were when they were released. My cellar is loaded with dry Riesling. I don't know what to drink every day, except I go downstairs <laughs> and there's always a bottle of Riesling looking at me and saying, it's time. Yeah. And I just get so excited. Like two weeks, uh, uh, a week ago, I drank a 2002 Peter Lehman Riesling, which was, well, obviously, tw 21 years old, barely old enough to drink, but yeah. I drank it, <laughs> and it was phenomenal. I drank it with some, some people who really understood Riesling, and they said, oh my God, this is one of the greatest wines of all time. And I said, no, it's not, but it's and a good example of how great Riesling, when it's aged properly, can take on astounding characteristics. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody's going to like it. It had a little trace of petroleum. Hmm. Some people would say, new, newcomers would say, oh, it smells, like, it smells like a refinery. I'm not going there. Oh, fine. Give it to me. I'll drink it. Yeah. Because that's exactly what a good old Riesling will exhibit. Shows you that, that wine evolves and becomes better. The one wine that I had most recently, the 2020 vintage of uh, Pusey Vale from Australia, from, uh, Eden, from Eden Valley. Phenomenal wine, sells for around $25 a bottle. It's, it's absolutely a smash bargain. If anybody wants a great Riesling, Pusey Vale 2020, and it's dry. It's all, almost all Australian Rieslings are dry. Um, this is my favorite hobby right now, is collecting Riesling and drinking Riesling, and most people think that I'm a little nutty, but hey, that's all right. It's, it's the whole subject of what we're talking about. It's what you like. I make Riesling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you obviously know quite a bit about it. The thing is, so what? Who cares what other people think? You drink it. Well, I care about it to the point where I am a, I'm proselytizing. Okay, I'll give you that. I mean, I do try. And most of the time, I do it when I have a bottle open in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes it more fun, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Dan, I could talk to you all day, and I'm hoping maybe one day we'll be able to get together again and, and do a sure. follow-up interview to this. But uh, for our listeners, is there a way they can follow you, contact you? Is there a website or an email? Are you comfortable with that? Well, I do a newsletter uh, that's a, now a monthly newsletter. We have a website, and it's Vintage Experiences. And just go on to vintageexperiences.com, and you'll find uh, a little background on me, and then there's a sign-up sheet. Um, it's it, The newsletter's been going since 1996. It was weekly for several years. For about 20 years, it was weekly. It's now roughly a monthly. Um, we, we put in some tasting notes of wines that I found. I, I buy most of the wines that I review. Virtually nothing is expensive. Nothing is a bargain. I mean, I call them bargains, but everything. For example, just the other day, I wrote about a $37 Barolo. It's about as good a Barolo as you can find on the mark in the market today. And all the Barolos that I tasted this wine with were in the $70 range. And this is half that. It was $37.95. And it's a terrific example. And it's available now. And you can have it shipped to your home. Um, most people will think of Barolo as an expensive wine. Mm, sure. But I think this one really achieves what it's supposed to achieve. We, we waited three days for this wine before it opened up finally. I do a lot of an analysis on these wines. I get chemical analysis on a lot of them to prove to my readers in case they ever ask. Um, this wine is perfectly balanced and structured, but a lot of my wines, for example, yesterday I was in a wine shop and picked up a a bottle of a of a white wine, I'd previously had it, and uh, it, it's uh, it's a white wine that sells for seventeen dollars, easily worth forty. But I knew the wine; I'd previously had it, and I saw it was still available for sale in the wine shop, and he had just marked it seventeen ninety five. I said, "Wait, that's t time out. Got to get another one of those." So I added one more to the cart. Um, I do this all the time. I buy, the, I, I buy almost all the wines that I review. And it's, I mean, I do occasionally get a sample here or a sample there. But I'm writing a book right now on Cabernet. It, it's going to come out next year in 2024. It's going to be about the history of Cabernet Sauvignon and where it has gone and what, it, what trials and tribulations it went through and what uh, we are likely to see in the near future. That'll be an interesting book. I'll definitely get that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good read. It's got some uh, anecdotal information in it that has never been published before. Dan, thank you for the time. I really appreciate you coming down here to uh, hang out and talk wine. That's a delight. Thanks. Learn more by following Dan's newsletter, Vintage Experiences, at vintageexperiences.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gisha. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2024.